The Courage to Lead, episode 248. You're listening to the IB4E Coaching Podcast. Brought to you by IB4E Coaching, business coaching for executives, entrepreneurs, and small business professionals. Learn more at ib4e-coaching.com. Hey, Coach Arlen here. Welcome back to the podcast. Hope you guys are having a phenomenal week. I'm having a great week, and I'm excited to introduce you to my guest today. Please help me welcome Dr. David Burkus. Well, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. All right. David Burkus is one of the world's leading business thinkers whose forward-thinking ideas and best-selling books are helping leaders and teams do their best work ever. He's a best-selling author of five books, a sixth one on the way, um, about business and leadership. His books have won multiple awards and have been translated into dozens of languages. Since 2017, David has been ranked multiple times as one of the world's top business thought leaders. His insights on leadership and teamwork have been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Harvard Business Review, USA Today, Fast Company, Financial Times, Bloomberg, Business Week, CNN, the BBC, NPR, and CBS This Morning. A former business school professor, David now works at, with leaders from organizations across all industries, including PepsiCo, Fidelity, Ernst & Young, Adobe, and NASA. Uh, David holds a master's degree in organizational psychology from the University of Oklahoma and a doctorate in strategic leadership from Regent University. He lives outside of Tulsa with his wife and their two boys. David, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, no, this is awesome. Very cool. So um, did you grow up in the Midwest or? Uh, so I did. I did not. I'm, I'm uh, Philly originally, um, okay. still have the chip on my shoulder, took that with me <laughs> to the middle of the country. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I went to the University of Oklahoma, Boomer Sooner. Um, I met a girl and she oh, was from here and she yeah. wanted to go to medical school. And so it, I started running the debt calculators on in-state tuition versus if we moved back uh, to my house and did private or out of state and thought, let's stick around here. And then by the time she got done with all of that, my career was, was rocking and rolling. And so now we're, now we're here. I mean, I, I, I love it. I, I enjoy it. It's a yeah. beautiful part of the country. I'm a big fan of what I call B list cities as in not the top 10 most yes. popular cities in America, just one yes. sort of notch under big enough to have anything you want, but still fast enough to get around in 15 minutes. I'm, I'm a big fan of those. Nice. Very cool. Yeah. It's a great area. Love that area through there. All right. Um, I want to come back and talk about how you got your start, um, who you work with, how you help them we'll talk about your books. But before we get started, I've got 10 questions that I ask every one of my guests. Now, listeners know these are the questions made famous on the TV show Inside the Actor's Studio, where the host James Lipton asks these same questions of his Hollywood guests from TV, film, and stage. And I always figured if they're good enough for the Hollywood elite, they're certainly <laughs> good enough for my guests. So David, if you're ready, I've got 10 questions for you, sir. Yeah. All right. Question number one, what is your favorite word? Probably fantastic. That seems to be the uh, way I respond. If I'm in a good mood and people ask me how I'm doing, I don't know why I just stumbled into it. I think the fact that it's so long makes me able to draw out my answer more than just saying fine. Good job. All right. What's your least favorite word? Oh, moist. It's moist. Yeah. It's just, it's just, it's an ugly word. What turns you on? Um, I get, I get really excited when I'm learning new things or teaching something to someone that's sort of their first time, not reiterating, but like the blue mind moments. Those are probably the two biggest. So either, nice. I guess when I'm blowing my own mind or blowing somebody else's, I guess. Perfect. All right. What turns you off? Uh, lines. I'm not a very patient person. I don't like waiting in lines. 
I'm with you on that one. All right. What sound or noise do you love? Um, I have two boys and I, they're two getting them laughing, especially as they get older and it's harder to do is probably my favorite noise. Yeah. You do the dad joke things. Oh, that just gets eye rolls at this point. I can't do those anymore. Yeah. Those just make me laugh. Yeah. Yes, exactly. All right. What sound or noise do you hate? Tornado sirens. I live in the middle Mm. of the country. And yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Nice. All right. Uh, Question seven. What is your favorite curse word? Okay. So I've been trying to do this for a while, but I keep forgetting and using more traditional curse words, but I'm a big fan of the show, the Mandalorian. And I really want to make dank ferric, which is the curse word they use on the show. I want to make that a real thing. Like I want to actually say that when I'm actually angry and have only half the room get it because they've seen the show. Like, I think that would be an awesome thing to make a real curse word. Nice. Very cool. All right. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Um, hmm, now that's, a, that's an interesting one. Um, I, for a time, I always thought it'd be really, really cool to do like a TV hosting thing. Like not like, not like an actor or whatever, but like, or, and not like a participant in a reality show, but that guy who just introduces the character and then does all the voiceovers of the drama. I think that'd be kind of fun. That'd be fun. Very cool. All right. What profession would you not like to do? Well, my wife's an ER doctor, so there's no way I would want to be a physician ever. Ever. Yeah. With you on that. Okay. Question 10. Um, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Finally, that would probably be the best one. Meaning not only did I get there, but it took me a very long time to do it. Yes. Good job. All right. Dave, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, I want to talk about how you got your start. Um who you work with, how you help them. We're going to talk about your books, uh, some of the projects you've been involved in and stuff, and uh, at some point transition into courage and leadership. All right. So listeners, we're going to be talking about all that and more right after this. So stick with us. Hey, Coach Arlen here. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you do, make sure you share it with your family, friends, colleagues. Uh, like it, leave a review, and definitely subscribe. When you subscribe, that helps boost the podcast to where it's uh, seen and heard in a lot of different areas. So make sure you hit that uh, subscribe button and subscribe. And uh, again, thanks for tuning in. Hope you enjoy the episode. And I'm back with my guest, David Burkus. David, thanks again for uh, agreeing to be on the on the program been looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. Let's dive in. Um, so growing up, did you did you know you wanted to grow up to be a, a thought leader when it came to management and leadership, or did you have other plans? Uh, so a, you know, a, a thought leader in management and leadership? No, because when you're growing up, you have no idea that even exists, right? Like when you're like seven years old, there's like six jobs in the world. You could be like, you know, doctor, firefighter, police officer, teacher, and that's it. So obviously I didn't know it existed. I, I will say from a very young age, like, like early double digits, I wanted to be a writer, right? So the English writing, I was always the one that took extra care in all of those projects. I was a newspaper and literary magazine nerd in, in high school. I went undergrad to study English and creative writing. Um, but when you're that young, you think writing means fiction, um, and I don't write fiction, obviously. I do tell stories, but I don't write fiction. And it, what, it, the reason for that is that when I was in my undergrad years, I started reading like real narrative nonfiction, long form nonfiction, people who could tell stories, but stories that were true. And I just found that 
far more fascinating, particularly science and social science writers and things like that. So I came out of school wanting to do that. So I am in a way I'm doing the thing I wanted to do always, uh, at least on the writing side. But then in order to learn all of that, I went to graduate school for organizational psychology. And because I'm married to somebody who was in medical school at the time, we're still married, but she's not in medical school anymore. Um, I kept going into a doctorate, doctorate turned into adjuncting, turned into teaching, turned into that, that was all unexpected, right? But the idea was to, to be a writer on these topics. Um, it just so happened I went a whole lot deeper than I thought I was going to. Way deeper. Um, yeah, so you were a professor, right? Oral Roberts University. In, yeah, in yeah. so I, I taught full-time in the business school for basically a decade. Um, because of the work I'm doing with organizations and at conferences and that sort of thing, I had to start scaling that down. And then when COVID hit, I mean, pretty much mm -hmm. every midsize and small university, privately funded midsize and small university in America was hit pretty hard. And so I just kind of said, you don't, um, you know, you don't, you don't need to reserve these classes for me. If there's someone you're thinking of laying off that could also teach them, please give them to them and keep them on. I don't, I don't need to be here. So I've been, um, away from the university for about three years now. Okay. And then what drew you to, to management and leadership? I, I always say like, I either, I, I always jokingly say that my mission in life is to make work not suck, right? Like um, that was what drew me. I enjoyed stories that help people um, work better, be more productive, et cetera. I think, I think work is central to life, right? And, and if you have a, a negative experience at work that, that there's no such thing as work-life balance that spills over into life. Right. And so um, that became the focus at first. And then there's that realization that your team leaders, your managers have a huge impact on the culture of the teams that you're on. And that more than probably anything else, that's the single, there are other influences, but that's the single biggest influence on whether or not you're happy and engaged and motivated at work is, is the person leading the team that you're on. That's the old saying, people don't quit good companies, they quit bad bosses or, right. or whatever, bad companies, they quit bad bosses. And, and that's really why. So that's why I kind of zeroed in on that one. Nice. And then, so I know like people growing up, um, they become parents and they realize that they're doing and saying things that their parents used to say to them, right? You learn from, from your experiences. Yeah. Is it the same way with managers? Do they become a manager and, and manage the way that they were managed? Or did they come in saying, I need to do it this differently? Yeah. Um, yes, actually. I, I mean, if you have an incredibly negative experience, it's, it's very similar to parenting, right? If you have an incredibly negative experience as a child, then there's a lot of, and you manage to have post-traumatic growth, as Martin Seligman would say, then I think a lot of those people end up, I refuse to be like my parents, so I'm going to parent this way. And so I think sometimes you end up different. You know, a lot of times, if, if you had a decent or better manager, then yeah, that's the that's the single best class. But I do think there are people who had terrible bosses and their leadership course was making a list of things they promised never to do. So that can happen as well. Um, and, and, you know, that's fine. That's fine. More power to you overcoming that traumatic experience. Yes. I think a lot of, but that's good. I think a lot of bad managers or mediocre managers have a different dilemma, which is they didn't really learn anything. From their boss they got promoted into a leadership role because they were great individual contributors yes. and so what they seek to do is create a team of people who work exactly like them thinking that's the only way to work and that's usually what leads to the bad bosses that turn people into i'm going to resolve not to be like you and become a good boss right there's like yeah. this cycle that seems to yeah. happen uh, and you talk about those people who are excellent at what they do being promoted into a management type role i've been on the other end of it where um, somebody who was not a very good 
producer. They wanted to get them out of the way of production, <laughs> try to help increase production, promoted them to manager, which was- Oh, you must have worked thing. for either the federal government or the military. <laughs> yes, thank you. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. How'd you guess? Um, it, it, it happens quite often. Yeah, it happens a lot. The Peter Principle, right? You rise to the yeah. level of your incompetence or something. Well, and, and um, also just that idea that if I, if, if I advocate for your promotion, you'll be on a different team. So get out of here. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, precisely. So organizational psychologist, what exactly does an organizational psychologist do? Yeah. We're the fun side of psychology. No, I'm kidding. But I'm also not. So it's not abnormal, right? We study human motivation, team dynamics, culture, le leadership, et cetera. And, and yes, there are some that really do study dysfunction. There's a lot of folks who use organizational psychology to fight against burnout and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of us get into it usually because we're um, interested in human motivation. Or for me, actually, a lot of my grad research was around creativity and innovation and, and why people work in how you motivate people in non-routine uh, jobs and things like that. So, you know, kind of anything that has to do with people dynamics or intrinsic motivation, et cetera, specific to a work context, as opposed to some other, um, that's kind of catch-all organizational psychology. Interestingly enough, when I started, it used to be referred to as IO psych and still is in some places, but a lot of people have dropped the I just because so many more people are applying it to non-factory work or, or what have mm -hmm. you. Um, that, that I've gone ahead and sort of dropped that eye because there's a much more people element to that. Like I, the I in IO psych was much more about how do we just keep people being cogs in a machine? The O is more like we have to work together. So how do we do that without killing each other? Yeah. And that's the part I find surprisingly fun. Yeah. And building those cultures, right? Because that, uh, that has a lot to do with uh, not only the engagement of the employees and stuff, but it can impact uh, productivity. It can impact the quality of the work that's being done. That culture is really important. Yeah, no, culture culture's huge. And and actually, my big realization during COVID was that team culture is huge. You know, pre pre-COVID, we talked a lot about company culture. A lot of people still do. And certainly company culture exists. Mm -hmm. But I think even before the pandemic, it was true. That's not what influences people's experience of work. It's the teams that they're on. Right. Right. And the culture of that team. So you can have a really toxic team inside a great company. Mm -hmm. And so those people are having a miserable time. Or you can have an amazing team inside an incredibly toxic company. Um, that happens as well. And that's a much bigger driver. So that's where I've been focusing my research and my work on for the last probably five or six years. It was a big COVID revelation. So I went even mm -hmm. deeper on it. But then I started to look at past work and realized I've been circling around this question for a while. Nice. And yeah, COVID, uh, the pandemic brought out a lot of things, right? A lot of uh, big companies realize people can be productive in a remote situation. Yeah. Yeah. But when isn't it the does, irony, right? We, we struggle with yeah. a lot of isolation and loneliness and that just made teams more, even though you're working remotely, it makes teamwork more important, not less so. Yeah. And so how do you, how do you keep that camaraderie? How do you keep that culture built up? in a remote environment. I mean, being on Zoom all day is fine, but the the personal interaction, you know, yeah. that you normally get walking down the walking down the hallway, stop into somebody's office, you meet them in the coffee room or something like that is yeah. different. Well, so culture, positive cultures, team culture, it's a bit like, the, I'm gonna prove my undergrad English chops here. It's a bit like the opening sentence of Anna Karenina. Right. You remember okay. the Tolstoy novel, all happy families are alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own unique way. Yeah. Um, I guess that's two sentences. Uh, 
Team culture is kind of the same way. Positive team cultures are very, very similar, and they're usually built deliberately. In fact, we kind of we explore this in the new book. They're built around kind of three elements. I call it um, common understanding, but it's how much you understand the people on your team. You you know what's expected of you and what's expected of them, but you also know them and their work preferences and their personality. Psychological safety, which is how well you feel like you can take risks, like speaking up when you disagree or sharing crazy ideas. And then that the last one, pro-social purpose, a sense of purpose and who we're helping and who is helped by the work. So, you know, how do you build that? You don't necessarily need, I mean, in-person can bring a lot of, especially the, the common understanding and the psychological safety out easier than remote, but you can still do it in that remote environment, right? Um, it takes a little bit more deliberation. So on on common understanding, are we actually facilitating conversations and meetings about how we'd like to work together? What our work preferences are? What tools do we want to use? I mean, I I get so much leeway when I work with teams just saying, hey, first thing we should do, there are five different statuses. I think it's five in Microsoft Teams. Let's have a team-wide definition of what they mean. What does right. busy mean? What does, you know, uh, in a, what do these different terms mean? Do they mean you're like, do they mean you're in a meeting? Do they mean you don't want to be disturbed? Let's as a team, that, that builds common understanding, but you have to have that right. conversation deliberately, right? And, and psychological safety is kind of similar. It's harder to see when you might have offended someone. So you have to be kind of more deliberate about not doing it, but also more deliberate about checking in to make sure that people yeah. still trust you, that they feel like you're respecting their contribution, et cetera. So, yeah. so a short answer is deliberately. You do it much more deliberately, but there are you, you can't just rely on in-person. There's a lot of really overall negative organizational cultures out there that are just calling for everyone back. And I'm actually thinking that's the worst thing you can do because they're just going to come back to that crappy culture. Don't think yeah. your culture is going to get better just because you bring them all back. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I know some people who are really, they're, they're stressed thinking they are going to have to go back. You know, maybe it don't, it's only a couple of days a week, you know, it may be full time, but yeah, they're stressed. They don't really want to go back into it. And a part of it is a commute. Nobody wants to deal with the commute. Um, but so some companies or teams that have worked together before the pandemic and now they're in a virtual environment, do they fare better than people who are brought together as a team, never actually having, you know, physical contact or, or you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, um, in the early days, it was very, very clear that that was the case. Um, I'm not so clear about it now, actually, because the more the more we form teams of people who haven't met in person, et cetera, the more we have to be deliberate about those culture builder things. And so we are, at least in positive companies. Certainly, there's there, I'm sure there are examples out there of people who got hired remotely, never met anyone, and they feel totally alone and they burn out within a few months. I'm sure that happens. Um, but I think there's a realization that a lot of that has to be um, deliberate. So, so yeah, I think it was true in the early days. I'm, I'm not so sure it's true now. I, I will say this definitively, right? Which is that this big debate, like you were saying, your friends who were worried they're going to come back, et cetera. This big debate about remote and about hybrid and flexibility, it's actually not about that. It's about autonomy, mm -hmm. right? What people don't want to go back to, yeah, they may not want to commute, but they also don't want to go back to the expectation that I'm in the same place eight hours a day, four to five days a week, I want the ability to set my schedule that works for me. I want that. And so teams that were already that had a lot of individual autonomy mm -hmm. because those teams had to find ways to work together and tailor how they work together to each individual's preference because the individual had a ton of autonomy. Those are the teams that fare best, even now, three years later in a remote and in a hybrid environment. 
right? Because they've had to. The nice thing about no autonomy is it forces everyone at the same time. So collaboration happens. The problem is the quality of that collaboration sucks because people don't have autonomy. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, So you've got five books published currently, right? Uh, on a couple different topics. So the latest one, uh, Leading from Anywhere, The Essential Guide to Managing Remote Teams. Tell me about that. How did that get started? Was it through the pandemic or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I didn't I didn't just like pull off the luckiest timing in the world. I was there. Gonna say, it was deliberate. Yeah, we wrote it during good. the pandemic. No, what, what happened is so in 2016, so, my, so I, I guess I have to tell the whole story since we've got the time. Um, in 20, it's not a long story, but in 2013, my first book came out, which was birthed out of my, my grad doc, my doctoral research, which is all around creativity and innovation and especially creative teams and creative organizations. And that begged a question, which is okay, great. How do you build one of those organizations that allows these creative teams to happen? So that became a book in 2016 called under new management and under new management was all about these different workplace practices and policies you might hear about from all a lot of these creative companies what's unlimited vacation about what are these companies that make salaries totally transparent etc and there's a chapter in there about total autonomy and flexibility of work and when people come to the office and do we even have an office and here's a 1200 person organization that doesn't even have a headquarters isn't that crazy like we we're diving into all of that in 2016 um i didn't really think all that much of it <laughs> i went on and wrote other books And then the pandemic hit and I found a lot of people telling me they were going back and rereading that stuff. And the publisher of that book was like, Hey, we were, we were talking about your old book and we're talking about the need in the market. Um, you know, and, and the funny thing, you know, I was, I was running around speaking uh, mostly at associations and at company events and that sort of stuff. And all of that canceled for obvious reasons. And so they came to me and it's like, what are are you doing? Would be interested in writing this book on this. And I was like, well, you know, I don't have anything else to do and what the world needs from me. Right. Like I was, the third book was actually about networks and organizational Mm -hmm. networks and how they're structured and org design and how changes happen and, and all that sort of stuff, which is what was really fascinating me at the time, but that wasn't what the world needed. So I had to sort of, in my mind, pivot and realize it doesn't matter what I want to be talking about right now. What the world needs is this. So let's get to work. Um, and so that's what we did. So we went back and revisited and talked to a lot of those companies, revisited a lot of the research on on virtual and global teams and, and got that book out by January of 2021. Um, and that's been, you know, the majority of my work since has been working with organizations first to survive the fully remote thing and now to think through how we do this return to office or high permanent hybrid strategy, et cetera. Nice. Is there anybody that that you've worked with that got it right? that they're really doing it the way they they should be is kind of a model for other companies? Yeah, yeah, I've worked with a few. Um, for reasons of like NDAs and that kind of stuff, I can't yeah. name specific ones. Um, I, you know, I worked with one that went really deep into the individual roles. I mean, the, the biggest, I, let me say what I, I think most organizations are doing wrong first, and then this will okay. make more sense. Most organizations are going, hey, we're hybrid. We want you back in the office three days a week maybe going a tad further and saying everyone on Monday and boom. And, and a lot of midsize and smaller organizations might set the days. Like we want everyone in the office Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, but we don't care where you are Monday, Friday. That doesn't really work because a lot of jobs could have never been remote. A lot of jobs work better remote, et cetera. And so I've worked with some organizations that have gone at the individual level and really tried to classify every job based on how, what percentage of remote it can afford to be. 
And then, you know, tell people you're in this role so you can get, have this much and you decide all of that stuff. I worked with others that pushed it down to the team. You know, I, I think the ideal right now for an organization, unless you're the easy, the easiest ones were the ones that within three months of the pandemic said, we're a remote organization from now on because their yeah. decision was done. Bridges were burned. Let's go. Right. Right. The second easiest is to say we're committed to a hybrid and we're committed to getting people back to the office 60% of the time, which by the way, most of the pre-pandemic engagement research suggests that's about the right percentage of time to be working in office alongside coworkers. Like the highest engaged people are out of the office two to three days a week and in the office two to three days a week. So that's the right time frame. The difference is you have to set the, the boundaries and then push the decision down as far as it can go. So sometimes an individual, like the example I described, other times it's the team and saying to the team leader, we want, we want people to be together. We want them to be together 60% of the time. You work with your team to decide the schedule that works best on that. And when you make the decision at that level, it's more participative. It preserves that sense of autonomy and it's a schedule that actually works best for everyone. Imagine that. Yeah, that'd be nice. Very cool. Um, and your latest book, you said you have a new book coming out Tuesday, right? Yeah. Be best team ever. Best team uh, ever. The surprising science of high-performing teams, I think is where we settled on a subtitle. I can never remember that. When you have a title like best team ever, you, it's, it's pretty obvious right. what the book's about. You don't, you don't really have to remember the subtitle. Exactly. <laughs> sort of like, so tell the, me about that. Yeah. Sort of like the courage to lead podcast is, it's pretty obvious what it's about. Yeah. So, you know, with that realization, that team culture matters more post-pandemic. It's really sort of the continuation of leading from anywhere, right? Although it's location agnostic. If your team's already back in person, it'll be helpful. If your team's fully remote, it'll still be helpful. But it's really diving into those three elements of team culture I was talking about earlier. Common understanding, psychological safety, and then what I call pro-social purpose, which is how much we on the individual team know who's helped by our work. Sometimes that's customers or stakeholders or what have you. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's just other teams. We serve in support of this team, so that's right. our purpose, right? Um, and really diving into those three areas and how leaders can make improvements on their team in those three areas. And, and um, they're interdependent for sure. Like you can't build psychological safety without that common understanding because you need an understanding of individual differences and, and what have you. Uh, but all three need sort of deliberate attention. So it's sort of part, part expedition through the research on team culture and part sort of user's manual on how to build that stuff. Nice. Very cool. And that's coming out, you say, Tuesday? May 30th. Yep. May 30th. That's awesome. Very cool. So let's talk about courage. Um, on the program, we talk about uh, where you find the courage to leave the nine to five to create your own success. Where do you find the courage to overcome setbacks like divorce, bankruptcy, illnesses? Um, mm -hmm. For you, where did your courage come from to decide, first of all, teaching? That's a, a courageous thing, I think. Uh, for a lot of people, writing books, putting your thoughts out there and, and have maybe being challenged by that, that can be scary for some people. Where did you find your courage? Where did that come from? Um, you know, I, I, I think it's a combination of a couple different things. Um, the, the, the first would be, I didn't really have the courage to risk criticism of putting ideas out there in the world, making content. I mean, now we take, we make a ton of content and put it out there, but I used to sweat the comments on YouTube videos and stupid stuff yeah. like that. Um, so I think a lot of it came from, I needed to be convinced that I could help, right. That it was no longer about me. And I, I think a lot of my early content that was terrible probably was about me. Um, but as soon as I was convinced of that, it made it a little bit easier. Um, and then the other thing that happened was, 
to me, the real question about courage is actually a question of social support. Do you have mm. people who are are there to pick up the slack, right? And so, you know, I already said I'm married. We have two boys. Um, having their support, knowing that they love you no matter what happens, your book is a flop, your book is wildly successful. They actually don't care either way. I mean, certainly they're happy for your successes, but like uh, my favorite example of this realization of what I'm describing happened uh, shortly after my first book. We had an excerpt of that that then went kind of viral around the internet. And that led to being on um, CBS Mornings, the morning show, like Good Morning America, but CBS's version, uh, which I presume means less people watch it. Uh, and I was on the show and I immediately went for in New York and I immediately went to the airport, flew back home. I landed home. I picked up my son who was actually at his grandparents' house because mom was working at the hospital. And I picked him up and he said, hey, Daddy, I saw you on the TV. And he gave me this big hug and he kind of like smelled and so because he was a toddler at the time right and uh, so i was like he goes oh yeah and i pooped so like that idea of like daddy i saw you on tv and i pooped you need to change my diaper was this that was like the realization moment of like i could do whatever i want or fail at whatever i want and this kid doesn't care yeah. right which i think makes you realize that sometimes those things you sweat Sometimes those things that require a huge amount of courage actually aren't that big a deal because they're only from sort of that one sphere of your life. And if you have a support system, a social support system that will love you no matter what, you can buffer yourself in a sense from that, yeah. that sting of failure. And that gives you more courage. I don't know if any of that makes sense, but, but sure. that's how I think about it. Love that story. That's awesome. Um, and there are different types of courage we talk about. That as leaders, we need to step into different types of courage, intellectual mm -hmm. courage, the courage yeah. to set aside your long-held beliefs to make room for new knowledge, right? Because there's always something new. Um, yeah. Empathetic courage, social courage, saying what needs to be said, when it needs to be said, even if it's unpopular. Um, yeah. What type of courage do you think is most important for people? I think for leaders, the courage to say the phrase, I don't know, mm. is probably the single biggest one, right? We were already joking about it earlier, being a great producer, individual contributor, until you get promoted up into to management or being into one and so you get promoted. But what that creates is this feeling a lot of times that you're the leader, therefore you have to have all the answers, that people come to you with your problems, you have to have solutions, et cetera. And not only is that not true, right, that you don't have them all, you actually win a whole lot more trust with your team when you're willing to say, I don't know, what do you think? When you're willing to show that vulnerability, right? So I don't know is a form of sort of vulnerability courage, if you will, right? The courage to be vulnerable. But yeah. it's one that that is also sort of inclusive and says, I need you too. Um, but so many leaders I work with have trouble getting over that. In the moment when someone's coming to them with a question, a problem or whatever, they want to be a hero instead of going, I don't know, let's circle the team up and we'll figure it out together. Yeah. And I, I try to work with that with my clients on that. When somebody comes to you with a question, don't immediately answer. Ask yeah. them, well, what, what do you think? What do you know? What have you seen before? What have you tried already? you know, what worked. Yeah. Um, you know, if you were in this, if somebody came to you and asked, how would you coach them or, or something like that? Because a lot of times the employees have an answer. They think yeah. they know what the right answer is. So by saying, well, I don't know, what do you think? Yeah. You're also building them up. Yeah. You know, I, I've, I've also heard a phrase and I, and I really like this, which is, which is look, um, I'm here for you to talk about this problem as much as possible. And I will support whatever decision you make, but I will not make the decision for you. Right. 
And, uh, and that can be a different way of saying it. It's a little less vulnerable, but it's that same idea, right? But unfortunately, we, my friend Michael uh, Bungay Sanyar calls it the advice monster. Unfortunately, we have this little advice monster that creeps up yes. and tries to tell us, oh, puts a little thing in our ear. Oh, yeah, this is the perfect thing to say. And and unfortunately, we listen to it far too often. Yeah, far too often. Yeah. Yeah, I think you 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 lose that opportunity if you answer all the questions. And, you know, what I'm telling them is uh, your employees then don't have to think for themselves. You want them to grow, right? Our, our job as leaders is to create more leaders. Yeah. You don't yeah. do that by answering their questions and, and solving everything for them. You, you also don't have the capacity leader. to do it. You know, you're going to burn out. Absolutely. So speaking of leaders, what do you look for in a leader? Um. I, I look for, I mean, first of all, I look for somebody who cares because anything I would say after this is totally irrelevant, right? Who actually sort of cares for their people and and is is excited by the idea of coaching and developing people to be better and not just titles and, and what have you. Um, but I also, I, I look for leaders who know how to grow that sense of psychological safety because I think that's super hard. We, we talked about it earlier in this, I don't know question, but there's more to it than that. I, I look for leaders who can know that there's a voice we're not hearing in this group and bring that voice out as opposed to just letting the loudest ideas win, et cetera. I think as more and more work is knowledge work, tapping into collective intelligence, the intelligence of the whole team matters far more. And so I look for leaders who know how to do that by building the, the right environment for that discussion to happen. Nice. Yeah. I'm thinking back to some of the, the projects I've worked on, organizational change where you had that pocket of resistance and uh, you know, the managers, leaders, they thought, oh, we're going to have to fire these people because they're not with us. It's like, slow down. If they're resisting, it means they're not convinced that what you're doing is right. Yeah. Talk to them, ask them. Maybe yeah. they know, maybe they see something you don't see, you know? So a lot of times that pocket of resistance can be the the saving grace on some of these projects. Yeah. Oh no. I, I mean, absolutely. Right. I mean, uh, so I'm, I'm, again, I'm fascinated with the research around psychological safety, but it's when you dive into dis big disasters like challenger, right. Yeah. Um, there was a lack of psychological safety. We're moving too fast on the project. We have consensus and this person doesn't feel safe to do it. Um, change changes the exact same way. When someone's, when someone disagrees with a team, when they have the courage to actually mm -hmm. step up and disagree, they're not, okay, 4% of people are like narcissists, right. narcissists and sociopaths, right? So we're not talking about them. We're talking about 96% right. of people. They're doing it because they really do and are convinced that the project will be better. The change will be better if my input is considered. And so I can't help but share it. And you don't make those people go away without them feeling heard, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, so how many people do you have working for you right now? Do you have a team you work with or are you solo? Team is sort of an amorphous term. Um, we're a team, but we're like a network of, of various subcontractors. I have, I have zero sort of what we call W2 employees or 1099 right. employees. But yeah. um, I would say in, in terms of putting out all the content we have, the books, negotiating, speaking, et cetera, it's a team of about three of us right now. Nice. And then prior to that, uh, when you were university professor and some of the other projects you've worked on, did you have people reporting to you? Um, in, uh, yes, I was never like Dean of the school of business, but we have chairs and assistant chairs and project leads and, and what have you. Um, and so, yeah, probably the biggest, the, the num most number of people that I've had directly underneath me inside that university setting is probably about 12. I'm struggling. It was a while ago. Um, yeah. really fun project to revamp around the university's 50th, but, mm. <laughs> but yeah. Nice. Well, if I was to bump into any of these folks, 
who currently work with you or used to work with you, or maybe were um, one of your students in classes or something like that. If I was to bump into any of those folks and talk to them and ask them what type of leader you are, what would they tell me? What kind of leader are you? Well, Tyler, who's in charge of all our video stuff, would tell you I text him way too early. But Tyler's also 24. <laughs> um, you know, I think if, if I, if I, because of the loose nature of what we're running now, and because academia is sort of this way too, if if I fault anywhere as a leader, it's probably in too much of a leash, in too much autonomy, and not doing a clear enough job saying this is what sort of done looks like. Like a while back, I was researching for the new book, this whole concept around commander's intent and this very clear, like in a military setting, we may not give you all of the uh, orders, but we will say this is what a successful project looks like. And I probably don't do a good enough job making that clear. Um, I know you asked overall, but I figured rather than talk about how amazing I am, it's probably better to answer that question with where I could grow. Awesome. Love it. All right. So what's next for you? I mean, you've got all the books out and everything like that. Any big speaking engagements coming up? Yeah. I mean, so, so uh, best team ever is an interesting one for me. This is a book that was actually based on, on keynotes and workshops. So we were doing leading from anywhere. And then as people started to return to the office, they wanted to remove the words around hybrid and what have you, and focus more on the teams and what have you. And so that became a speech and a workshop we run with organizations that's been rocking now for about 18 months and so it needed its own book to sort of I mean, encapsulate a lot of those different ideas. And that'll be my focus for a long time. I think in terms of projects, I don't have, and this is the first time this has ever happened to me. I usually finish a book with an idea for another book that I really want to pursue. This time around, the only thing I can think of, and I may do this, is diving deeper across three books on each of those three pillars, common understanding, psychological safety, and pro-social purpose. But I don't know that those are book length works. I don't know what that looks like, but I know I'd like to go a little bit deeper on each one. Nice. Very cool. Good stuff. David, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for taking time out to uh, to chat with us. Really appreciate your time. If people want to learn more about you, learn about the work you're doing and get your books, how can they do that? What's your website? Uh, DavidBurgess.com, actually. B-U-R-K-U-S.com. The nice thing about a really weird name is nobody steals the usernames and that sort of stuff. They were all readily available. And I claim, I say nobody. I did once get a direct message on Twitter from another David Burkus based out of Hungary who sounded a little mad. Um, but I was like, dude, I'm 20 years older than you. Um, sorry, I got here first. Yeah. Yeah, Harlan, I thought was unusual. I got some guy from Australia who pinged me and said, hey, my name's Harlan too. So that happens. Spell, last name um, felt the same way too? That's, that's crazy. The I-C-K, his is I-C-K. Okay. Okay. That's still really close. close. Yeah. Very close. close. All right, David, I will have those links in the show. You're also active on LinkedIn, correct? Oh yeah. No LinkedIn. We're on, if you type David Burgess into pretty much any social network, uh, we've, we've got content there. Uh, LinkedIn being my favorite one to be around. Nice. All right. I will make sure those links are in the show notes for everybody. Uh, listeners, I hope you're taking some notes. Good information here. Definitely check out the books leading from anywhere and the new one coming out May 30th, best team ever. And uh, again, and David, thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me. All right, listeners, share this episode with your family, friends, colleagues. Make sure you subscribe so you know when new episodes are coming out and stick around because there's always more coming. That's it for me, Coach Harlan saying so long for now.